What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney John Lewis Gaddis is the Robert A. Lovett Professor of History at Yale University and was the founding director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy. His book, On Grand Strategy, is what sparked Sean's desire to feature him. Gaddis defines grand strategy as aligning potentially unlimited aspirations with necessarily limited capabilities and highlights the persistent error of focusing on the former while ignoring the latter. On this episode, John draws on a range of thinkers, including Thucydides, Machiavelli, Clausewitz, and Tolstoy, and how they use strategy to shape history. In addition, Professor Gaddis teaches courses on Cold War history, grand strategy, biography, and historical methodology. His George F. Kennan and American Life won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize in biography. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple, too, to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. So, John, you're on summer vacation from teaching at Yale. I'd like to know, what are you doing wasting your time talking to me this morning? <laughs> oh, I think it's a good cause, uh, Sean. First of all, you read my book, you know, so I think authors should always talk to readers. Uh, that's uh, fairly important. Um, secondly, I'm just learning about podcasts. Uh, yours is about the third or fourth one that I've done, but they do get a good um, response. And uh, third, it seems to me that professors should not just be professorial all the time. That is, they should not just uh, talk to each other or talk to their students, but they should seek a somewhat wider audience, it seems to me. Uh, and I see your podcast is one way to do that. So happy you suggested that we do this. Well, I very much appreciate that. Yes, I enjoyed your book very much. And before we dive into that, I'm always intrigued by people's routines and, and systems they've implemented throughout their days. Is, th is there anything you do in the morning, any routines you have? Uh, yes, uh, coffee first. <laughs> uh, very important. Uh, and uh, read the paper uh, and spend about an hour on that or so. I'm kind of a slow starter in the morning. Uh, and then by about 9 or 9.15 or so, uh, bestir myself and begin to work on whatever it is that I'm doing that day. 
this assumes uh, a day with no classes, of course, if I'm just um, sitting at home. You know? So that's, that's the normal drill. Which papers do you subscribe to? Oh, uh, uh, certainly the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the New Haven Register is becoming an increasingly good paper. Uh, and it takes me an hour or so each morning, uh, maybe a little more, just to plow through all three of those, which I do fairly carefully. Uh, and that's the start. And then from there, I go on to whatever is on the schedule for that day. You mentioned on the schedule for the rest of the day. Do you typically block out and schedule most of the remaining hours in your day? No, I'm not that systematic. Um, there is a kind of automatic uh, scheduling uh, during term when we're teaching and my classes are on a certain day or at a certain time or something like that. You know, But in the summer when uh, we're not, uh, the schedule is completely free. So what I try to do is to uh, vary the routine. I don't like to just stick with doing one thing uh, all day. Uh, so right now, uh, I'm not, in fact, writing a new book. Uh, and uh, this is actually the first time in about 50 years or so that I have not had some kind of a writing deadline uh, out there of one kind or another, a dissertation or a book or something. So I'm enjoying the luxury of that. I'm enjoying the luxury of being irresponsible and uh, just being able to uh, read in a very eclectic, unsystematic way um, various things and without any great idea quite of how, if at all, I would use them, but just because they're things that I'm curious about. Uh, I'm also this summer... Um, Going through and just organizing old papers, uh, you know, the files going all the way back to graduate school. Uh, last year, I was doing that with diaries. I kept a very elaborate set of diaries for about 25 years, which have now been uh, uh, sent over to the Yale Manuscripts and Archives Library. Uh, but they're interested in having the papers uh, also, just the correspondence and that sort of thing. At some point, so I'm trying to put that in some kind of uh, order uh, as well. So uh, that's pretty much the routine over the summer. It's been quiet, but it's been gratifying to just be able to indulge myself a little bit with reading. You mentioned the eclectic nature of what you're reading. I've read that you're mostly a Kindle guy. Is this true? Uh, mostly, but not entirely. I'm a Kindle guy when it comes to reading um, novels, particularly um, and uh, I'm a Kindle guy uh, quite often when it comes to reading something that I'm pretty sure I'm not going to need to take notes on. But when it's something that I um, need to take notes on, and I am a fairly compulsive note taker for books, um, I've come around to the idea that uh, I still need to have a hard copy for that. Because what I tend to do, Sean, with note taking is just to uh, check in the back of the book and see if it has three or four blank pages. Uh, and if it does, I buy the book. And that gives me room to fill those up with microscopic notes, uh, which uh, can often uh, be a couple of hundred notes, you know, if it's some kind of a big, big book or something like that. That way I can come back to the book. I can remind myself of what it was that I thought was interesting about the book. And if I need to summarize it for something, you know, for a classroom uh, session or for an article or whatnot, I've got pretty quick access to it. If I take separate notes, I'll lose the notes somewhere along the way. So this keeps the notes and the book together. Uh, it's kind of a primitive method, but it does work. Well, it's primitive, but it does seem to work for you. Uh, I tend to do a similar type strategy. I'm interested, what are some of the books you've picked up this summer that you've enjoyed? Uh, I have enjoyed uh, several different things. I've been reading some books on climate change in history. That is, um, past examples of climate change that took place rapidly enough so that the people who were living through them could actually see the difference. I mean, you know, the weather getting discernibly colder within somebody's lifetime or maybe even shorter periods of time. And there are such periods uh, in history. Uh, it uh, has happened actually fairly frequently in the Roman Empire. It was happening in North America at the time of the original uh, explorations that were taking place. Uh, certainly it happened in 1815-1816 as a result of volcanic eruption, Krakatoa, in Indonesia, which caused uh, uh, an extremely cold winter everywhere in the northern hemisphere. 
And it's interesting to read the accounts of these from people living at the time because they had no explanation for this, but they knew very well that it was happening. And um, uh, I'm, I just think that puts a whole new spin on climate change. Uh, people are arguing, is it real or is it not real? And the question of how real it is as a long-term proposition uh, is still very much uh, debated. But I don't think there's any question that it does happen on a short-term basis and uh, that there are these global ecological relationships that are there uh, that uh, cause the whole, the whole system to be a pretty sensitive system. And that's what has intrigued me. So that's been one theme uh, for the reading uh, this time. What's your selection criteria like? Uh, just reading book reviews. Uh, these are mostly new books as they come out. And um, so if it looks interesting, uh, I'll um, order it. So that drives me in some different directions uh, as well. So, for example, uh, there's a new fine biography of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., uh, you know, who lived to be about 90, and actually past 90. Uh, that has just come out. Stephen Budiansky is the author, and I don't know enough about law uh, and legal theory. Uh, and I know that Holmes was a great character and a great aphorist, and um, many of his uh, uh, alleged sayings have uh, come down and become immortal. Uh, he was also wounded in the Civil War three times, but survived into the age of the, the New Deal. So just an interesting character, interesting to read about. And this new book is a, a way into that, uh, for sure. So uh, I've been uh, doing that. I've been reading a book. Uh, I've gotten interested in the history of the empire, and particularly the history of the British Empire. So there is a new book out by David Gilmore, The uh, British in India, which is a kind of a social history of the British Empire in India in the 19th century at its height. And that one was fun to read as well, full of anecdotes, but full of shrewd observations on um, how just a very, very few officials can run or were able to run in the 19th century uh, a huge empire like that. Well, those are new books that I have not consumed yet, so I'll have to check those out. But that's similar to how I came across your your book. I, I'm interested in strategy and your ability to tie story throughout history. And mm -hmm. most of the listeners, they're not going to be military strategists. And I'm hoping, based on your work, we can distill some of those lessons. And so let's begin. How do you define grand strategy? Well, I would say grand strategy simply is, I say this in the book, the um, calculated relationship of um, potentially, um, well, let's put it this way, invariably uh, limited capabilities to potentially unlimited aspirations. So in other words, the hopes and dreams you have, uh, because hopes become dreams, they can become anything. Uh, there is no limit to them. But the capabilities that you have, uh, what you have to work with at any point, no matter how powerful or wealthy you are as a person or as an empire. These are always going to be limited. And so there's a basic asymmetry uh, between ends and means. Uh, ends always uh, are larger than means. And strategy is uh, uh, how you go about making the choices, how you go about deciding which of your limited capabilities you're going to enlist in the pursuit of uh, which aspirations. Strategy always means, uh, at one point or another, reining in some of your aspirations, choosing what to do now, postponing what you can't do now, maybe saying some things you can never do. Uh, but that is what strategy is all about. So speaking of aspirations, I'm intrigued then how you initially became interested in this topic of strategy and which led you to even taking on the great task of writing a book in it. Well, this was uh, an interesting um, experience about five years out of graduate school um, in the um, early 1970s. Uh, my first book had just come out, and I was invited um, to come to Newport to the Naval War College to uh, give a book, uh, to give a lecture uh, on uh, the containment strategy, because that's partly what the new book was about uh, in the first place. And I knew nothing about uh, strategy. I knew nothing about what they were teaching at the War College. I didn't even know what a War College was. 
but I got up and found myself in front of uh, about 250 um, naval and other military officers. I found myself being introduced by an admiral uh, who was president of the War College at that point. This was Stan Turner, later CIA director. And I delivered my lecture, after which Admiral Turner got up and said to the assembled uh, multitudes, Professor Gaddis was wrong on the following points, right on these points, but he was right on enough points that he will be teaching at the Naval War College next year. <laughs> and that was news to me. <laughs> Uh, but I uh, had no experience in dealing with admirals. I did not know that you can actually say no to admirals, so I said yes to this guy. And I spent two years over there. It was a cram course in the classics of uh, strategy, many of the classics that I talk about in the new book. So we were reading Thucydides, we were reading Machiavelli, we were reading Clausewitz. But I was confronted with Thucydides never having read it, uh, with the requirement that uh, the very next week I would be teaching it uh, in a seminar alongside a very gruff uh, uh, Marine colonel. Uh, this was still in the days when everybody smoked, and so he was a chain-smoking Marine colonel with about three tours of duty in Vietnam and whatnot, and he was my teaching partner. And boy, was that ever a learning experience, uh, for sure. So uh, I was swimming just barely ahead of my own students desperately, which often is one of the best ways to learn a new field. Uh, spent two years there, uh, wound up doing a, a separate book on the strategies of containment as a result of that time spent there, and developed an interest in it, uh, which I had all along, although I was not able to do much with it um, uh, at that time in the 1970s and 1980s. But when I moved to Yale uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, there was the opportunity to develop some new programs here with uh, colleagues like uh, Paul Kennedy and Charlie Hill. And uh, so we were looking around for a concept, and we uh, decided no civilian university, no big civilian university was teaching grand strategy in the same way that the war colleges uh, were. So why not start a course uh, uh, on this? Uh, at Yale, and this is what we did uh, 22 years ago, and we said it's going to be historically based, it's going to be based on the classical texts, it's going to be based on the premise that there is some reason why people come back and keep reading the classics uh, after hundreds, even thousands of years. There must be something in them that you can distill out and use uh, in life, and uh, maybe we could teach that to our students. And uh, so the course immediately took off, and uh, students were clamoring to get into it. And it's been taught here ever since. So uh, I felt at this stage uh, in life, having reached my mid-70s and being fairly close to retirement, although I'm not retired, it really would be good to do a book on teaching, to be a, do a book uh, in which I was trying to... Uh, that distill into a small volume what we were trying to teach in that course uh, over such a long period of time. And uh, that's basically what the book is about. I, I have to, to pull on a thread you mentioned when you were doing this course, it was one of the best ways for yourself to learn. Do you mean the physical act of teaching something is one of the best ways to learn? Absolutely. Uh, and no, no better way to learn because um, you don't, uh, actually know what you know until you try to explain it to somebody. Uh, and particularly if you're explaining it to somebody in a classroom setting, which means that you have a limited amount of time in which to explain it, because class is not going to last all day and because the students have other things on their mind. And uh, if you go on too long, their attention will wander, obviously. Uh, so the ability to take what you know to compress it and convey it uh, in a way that students can get the essence of it uh, and can show you, you know, when they write their own essays or take tests or whatnot, that they've gotten the essence of it. Uh, this really is just a way of confirming what you yourself know. Uh, what you know is pretty useless if you can't convey it to somebody else. Was that the first time you came to this realization, or was that a discovery you had earlier in life? No, I think I'd known this pretty much all the way through. I don't think you can teach without um, becoming aware of this principle. 
So that was that was something I didn't did not have to learn. I, I knew that all along, but it certainly was reflected in this experience of teaching strategy here. Well, I don't think we can glance over foxes and hedgehogs when we're talking about strategy. And I would love for you to to slightly distill this for the listeners and how this theme reoccurs throughout the book. Yeah. Well, this fox and hedgehog uh, dichotomy, which has become famous, itself had very strange uh, origins. It originates with uh, the British philosopher Isaiah Berlin, uh, but he developed it um, back in the late 1930s really as a result of just a party game. He was a great party goer, and he, he was a great socializer. And uh, somebody had uh, uh, found uh, a cryptic quotation from an ancient Greek poet. The fox knows many things. The hedgehog knows one big thing. And Berlin uh, said at a party, that's an interesting idea. Let's try to classify great writers. And so they were going down the list of great writers, which ones were foxes knowing many things, which ones were hedgehogs knowing one big thing. Then Berlin said, well, um, could that be a way of uh, categorizing influential people in general? So he wrote an article uh, in uh, the 1950s about this, um, just saying that this is a starting point for discussion. He did not say that uh, people, that everybody falls neatly into one category or the other. He did not even say that you can't be both or you can't be partly a fox at, at some point and partly a hedgehog at some other point. Uh, but uh, it took off. It went viral uh, before there was an Internet. And so it became this very, very famous uh, distinction. For me, it's useful just in the way that Berlin meant it uh, as a way of starting a discussion uh, to take the great uh, classical uh, authors on strategy, uh, to get take the great historical figures uh, who had strategies, and just say, were they uh, a fox? Were they a hedgehog? Uh, why? And with what results? And that's a good conversation starter in a seminar when you're teaching a course. But then it raises very interesting uh, questions. In a, uh, what is the optimal strategy uh, for a grand strategist? If you go back to this idea of applying limited capabilities to uh, unlimited aspirations, uh, what's the best way to do that? To be a fox, to know many things, or to be a hedgehog, to know one big thing? And the answer is, of course, that there are uh, advantages both ways. A hedgehog can become very uh, monomaniacally focused on one thing and can fail to notice what's going on around him, you know, so that um, uh, he gets blindsided by accidents and by uh, uh, just things coming from one side or the other or whatnot. A fox will have almost a 360 view of the horizon, but often lacks a clear sense of purpose or a clear sense of direction or a compass heading. And so uh, part of the question, part of the reason why this is a good discussion topic in seminar is to get students thinking about how you could be both, how you could uh, be one when you need to be one and be the other when it's appropriate to be the other. And that really is the theme of the book, uh, is to uh, draw that out and say that this is the nature of leadership, is the ability to do that. And grand strategy is the guide to uh, how to do that. It's been a number of years since you've written the book, and I'd be interested in you thinking back when you think of a fox, when you think of a hedgehog, who most comes to mind for you? Sure. Well, uh, it seems to me that one of the best examples of this comes with the, uh, the history of the Spanish Armada. When King Philip II of Spain, Spain being the world's most powerful empire uh, in the 16th century, uh, decided to bring in to attack England and sent the Spanish Armada in 1588, uh, when Elizabeth I is in the last third or so of her long uh, monarchy. And uh, uh, Philip was a great hedgehog. Philip was a religious hedgehog. Philip believed that everything that uh, he did, or everything that Spain did, was the will of God. And this is how Spain had become uh, such a big empire. By this time, it dominated most of North and South America, of course. And so his view was that we can, uh, it's, it's going to be easy to take England back. Uh, we have God on our side. 
Elizabeth was much more skeptical. She ran a weak state at that point. There was no British Empire at that point. There was hardly a British Navy uh, at that point. Uh, and she was a female monarch, which was very unusual uh, in that in that day and age. But she was extremely skillful at keeping everybody that she dealt with off balance. She understood the virtues of unpredictability uh, as a way of compensating for uh, weakness. So you try to get your enemies embroiled with each other instead of with you, for example. And she was uh, uh, immensely skillful at this. Uh, and uh, she would never have said God is on her side. She would have said instead something like, God is an Englishman, <laughs> a patriotic Englishman. <laughs> and uh, so uh, uh, that was, uh, uh, so she would tell God what to do. She was the monarch, you know. And that was the great difference between them. Uh, and I think it, it reflects uh, kind of the turning point uh, in history between a, a deeply religious consciousness, because if you go back earlier from Philip, uh, uh, for hundreds of years, people had tried to interpret politics as a reflection of religion. Uh, but uh, much after Elizabeth, you know, religion gets subordinated to politics. And so it's a pretty effective, um, a pretty good uh, turning point, uh, for sure. So that's one um, pretty clear case uh, of this uh, as well. Um, I think one of my favorite examples is Napoleon in Russia in 1812, because here is somebody who started out as a classic fox. Napoleon was an extremely uh, uh, skillful uh, manipulator, starting from nothing, defeats French enemies right and left, uh, becomes uh, proclaims himself to be emperor of the French, and then in 1812 gets this very bright idea of marching to Moscow. And why not? Because he had marched everywhere else uh, uh, at this point and had achieved his objectives. But what he forgot was that it's a long way to Moscow, and Russia is a very big country. And uh, Russia has a climate which gets very cold in the winter, and you cannot just make it to Moscow uh, in nice weather and so on and so forth. So here is somebody who had been a fox but who lost a sense of uh, just common sense um, uh, environmental problems that you would have to operate within, and uh, sent the French army into uh, Russia. They captured Moscow, but they froze uh, on the way, and once they had it, it did them no good, whatever. The Russians didn't have to defeat them uh, on a battlefield. They just waited them out, uh, and uh, as the French uh, uh, starved and froze and the horses died and the food ran out and whatnot, Napoleon had no choice but just to turn around abjectly and to uh, retreat. So it's one of the great victories for a fox over a hedgehog in that, in that regard. So there are a lot of other examples of this kind of thing, but I think the bottom line is just this question of uh, how do you um, maintain a sense of purpose, uh, maintain a clear objective in whatever it is that you're trying to do, but at the same time, look around you. Uh, never lose sight of where you are, uh, where you're going, what the weather is, what the degree of what the terrain is, what degree of resistance are you running into. All of these kinds of things, just to have the illusion that because you have one big idea, you can bowl over everything else, is a fatal illusion. Uh, it seems to me, and this is where the hedgehog needs to be tempered by the view of the fox for sure. No, I love that example of Napoleon, and you equate it to a sponge absorbing them in, pulling them further into Moscow. So I'm glad you brought that one up. Yeah. I'm interested, though, about going between fox and hedgehog. Does that deal mostly with ego? Well, I think everything ultimately deals with ego in one form or another, but ego can take over and dominate some people. So there can be some people who will uh, uh, regard themselves as the most important thing in the world, the most important influence in the world. Nobody else matters. And that's one kind of ego. There's another kind of uh, ego which says, well, yes, uh, I'm important. What I'm trying to do is important. But at the same time, uh, I'm modest enough to acknowledge that uh, what I do will also be shaped to a considerable degree by circumstances uh, and that uh, I don't have the power overrun everything circumstances can shape what it is that I wind up doing. 
I can still lead, but I must lead uh, in a way that is consistent with the circumstances surrounding me. And one of the best examples of a, of a leader like that, uh, someone whose ego was subordinated to a careful sensitivity to circumstances, was Lincoln uh, in, the, in the Civil War. Uh, because he knew where he was going. Uh, he wanted, above all else, to keep the Union together. Uh, he began by uh, thinking that to abolish slavery would break the Union, but he worked himself around to the idea that the only way to save the Union was to abolish slavery. So his means, his, his uh, uh, strategies evolved as time went on. And he said at the end of the war, just before he was assassinated, he said, um, circumstances have shaped me more than I have shaped circumstances. But somebody else who was very much like that, it seems to me, was Franklin Roosevelt in the run-up to World War II, who knew that he could not uh, simply take an isolationist country uh, into the war uh, when the war broke out in 1939 in defense of Britain or France or the other European democracies. He had to wait until uh, public opinion had come around to seeing the importance uh, of that. And he waited uh, really about two and a half years uh, before that happened. Uh, waited ultimately for the Japanese to solve that problem for him by attacking Pearl Harbor, just as in many ways the Confederates solved Lincoln's problem for him by attacking Fort Sumter in 1861. Uh, and both of them knew that circumstances that they could not foresee could nonetheless help in achieving their purposes, and that's a fox-like view. Uh, you're leading, but at the same time, you're allowing um, circumstance uh, to reinforce your efforts. You mentioned with Lincoln the evolution of his strategies, and I want to tie that back to Napoleon for a second, and you mentioned why he couldn't continue to go to Moscow, and his thinking became too big, and, and I'm wondering how a great leader understands when their thinkings become too big and will be detrimental, but also using their big thinking to expand and become better. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really uh, important question, and I'm not sure that I've answered it adequately um, in, in the book. I think this is getting around to a question of temperament. And temperament uh, is something that's very different from what we would call intellect, from brain power. Temperant, temperament is indeed uh, personality. It's how you deal with setbacks. It's how you see yourself. And this is only a hypothesis, uh, Sean. I don't mean to set it out there as a fundamental principle. But it does seem to me that uh, the leaders in history who have been able to both lead and at the same time uh, observe, uh, uh, see what was around them, they had what I would call a certain lightness of being. They had a certain sense of irony about themselves. Uh, they did not look for themselves for some kind of role as a great theological, biblical prophet or something like that, acknowledged that what they did uh, would be contradictory. And um, so Roosevelt, at one point, is uh, just talking about his leadership strategy, and he says, uh, the way to understand it is that I'm a juggler. I'm juggling six or eight different things uh, in the air at the same time. My right hand doesn't know what my left hand is doing. Uh, but, of course, his brain knew what both hands were doing. So there's an interesting combination here with him of spontaneity and, at the same time, design. And I think you have to have a certain kind of personality uh, to be able to manage that. If you saw the Spielberg-Lincoln movie uh, when that came out about uh, six years ago, uh, there's a fake scene in that movie. It didn't actually happen, but it beautifully illustrates uh, the way Lincoln thought about this. Uh, he's trying to get the 13th Amendment through the House of Representatives to abolish slavery once and for all. It's uh, early 1865. Uh, he's meeting all kinds of resistance, and he's using all kinds of means to buy votes in the House of Representatives. So he's bribing people. He's offering them postmasterships. He's cutting deals with them. Uh, he's blackmailing them. Uh, you name it, he's doing it. And so one of the great abolitionists, Thaddeus Stevens, uh, in the movie comes up to him and says, Mr. President, this is a noble objective. How can you use such ignoble, ignoble means in the pursuit of it? 
And like in, in the movie, uh, this is Daniel Day-Lewis playing him, uh, just uh, starts reminiscing about his days as a young surveyor. And he found the compass, which showed him what direction True North was in, to be an, uh, uh, an extremely valuable instrument. It was absolutely necessary in surveying. But if all he had done, he said, was to look at the compass and nothing else, he would have fallen off a cliff or uh, starved in a desert or something or wandered into a swamp. So you had to do both. You had to look at compass, the uh, compass heading, and you had to look around at your, uh, your surroundings. And I think it takes a certain personality uh, to do that. You cannot be uh, a person who is so egocentric. Uh, as to be unobservant, and I think that's really one of the most profound keys to leadership, uh, and Lincoln and uh, FDR are really superb examples of that, as is Elizabeth I. Any one present day that you see similarities between? I think I'm going to refrain from commenting on the <laughs> present day. There's certain obvious things one could say, but they've all been said before, so I don't think I have anything much to add to this. I will just say that the present circumstances are going to be fascinating for historians to study. Very interesting. Well, we're talking a lot about ego, and I'm also intrigued about empathy and what you've discovered and distilled with your research. About empathy? Correct. Well, empathy simply is putting yourself in the mind of someone else. It's the opposite of being egocentric. And it's not the same thing as sympathy. Sympathy means feeling sorry for somebody. Empathy is something different. Empathy is just saying, um, okay, uh, I am marching to Moscow. I have an army of 600,000 men. How are those men going to feel when September and October come and we are still uh, 50 miles away from Moscow and uh, the first snowflakes begin to fall, you know, something like that? Uh, and that's where Napoleon uh, simply was blind. <laughs> paid no attention to that. Uh, he should have um, done that. Empathy is putting yourself into the mind of your adversary. So what is going on uh, in, uh, in the mind of the person that you're competing with in the first place? So one of the classic examples here, which I don't talk about in the book because I did not want to get into Cold War studies here, but it's uh, JFK in dealing with Khrushchev in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and uh, at several different key points in the crisis, uh, JFK um, emphasized the need to look at this issue as Khrushchev had looked at it. What might have motivated Khrushchev to put the missiles in Cuba in the first place? What might motivate him to remove those missiles and so on? Uh, and it was an extraordinary uh, exercise, it seems to me, in empathy. It's a rare quality uh, because uh, it's uh, so easy to let your own advisors push you in a certain direction. It's so easy to let your own intelligence intake push you in a certain direction uh, and simply to lose track of uh, how, the, how the mind of the other side works. It's something that, uh, here I will talk about current events for a minute. It's something I think we need to do very carefully with the Chinese. We need to see how the Chinese see us uh, and see uh, what uh, see the current situation against their history over the last, uh, well, really four or five thousand years. That's how far back they look. Uh, and uh, considering that they have a much longer view of history than, than we do, and considering that uh, they they uh, they have been through um, a lot of very traumatic crises in the last 200 years or so. So we need to know something about that. We need to know where they're coming from, uh, I think. Instead of just uh, imposing our views on them, they should do it our way. They should be as democratic as we are. They should be as, as uh, respectful of the rule of law as we are, and so on and so forth. It needs to go both ways. They need to have some sense of the same thing about us, of course. You mentioned thinking how they think and getting inside the mind of them. Have you discovered or come across any interesting techniques great leaders use to do that? <laughs> well, I don't know about techniques great leaders use, but I know the techniques that I want my students to use, which is to read a lot of history and biography, because it seems to me that uh, this is the best 
source for this. I'm very distrustful, Sean, of theory, the whole assemblage of fields which style themselves as the social sciences, meaning that they can approximate the degree of rigor that the physical and the natural sciences can uh, approximate by taking a theoretical approach. And I think this is profoundly misguided when it comes to human affairs. Just to take one example, the whole concept of globalization, the idea that the world was flat, the idea that national boundaries were going to fade away, the idea that national cultures were all going to blend together, and that we were all, as a result, going to learn to uh, like one another and live together peacefully forever after. You may remember that there were a fair number of people, serious people, who were saying that back at the time of the end of the Cold War. That was the theory. But it was a very superficial theory based just on the experience of how the Cold War had uh, come out. Uh, the fact that uh, the democracy had proven to be more robust than authoritarianism in that in that conflict. But it deeply failed in its inability to take into account the long sweep of Chinese history or the long sweep of Russian history or uh, any number of other cultures, deeply rooted cultures, uh, uh, who, uh, con- whose influence continues to shape the way those countries act today. So you cannot divorce a people from a culture, and theory smooths over these things. Uh, and that's why I think history is the only way to get into it. I'm a voracious reader. I must have 20 books on my desk and on the floor right now. You mentioned different biographies. For someone who needs to better their understanding, their frameworks, any biographies you recommend? Well, it's hard to do. I do a course here uh, in biography for uh, sophomores and juniors. Uh, and so I have certain standard uh, uh, books that I use, but it's a kind of a strange assemblage. Uh, but maybe I can quickly just run through that reading list, and that'll give you some sense of what I think is important for undergrads uh, to know. I'd love that. I always start with uh, Virginia Woolf's uh, fake biography, Orlando, which she did as a spoof on biography. But I do it because uh, quite often uh, a spoof is one of the best ways to expose the underlying assumptions of any subject. And she is great. She is devastating uh, at doing that and a wonderful writer in the first place. But because I like to keep my students on edge and off balance, you know, I immediately go from Virginia Woolf to St. Augustine and his Confessions, uh, the first autobiography. And uh, they get very interested in this because, uh, contrary to what you might think, it's full of juicy stories. It has a lot of sex in it and whatnot. You know. And they're fascinated to know that uh, people had sex back in the 4th century A.D. You know, that comes as a great revelation sometimes to students. Uh, and then I go from that um, to the second volume of Robert Caro on uh, LBJ. And it's, in uh, many ways, probably the least read of those now four volumes that are out and another one that's coming. But it's a great uh, detailed story of how uh, uh, Johnson, running for the Senate for the first time from Texas, stole the election. And that was the only way that he got into the Senate. He stole it. He won an 87-vote majority in the whole state of Texas in 1948. Cairo was able to dig out uh, enough details so that first, uh, for the first time we understand exactly how Johnson stole the elections, that election. But then Cairo goes on to make this point, which really bugs my students. Uh, he says, if Johnson had not stolen that election, he would never have gotten into the Senate. He would never have become vice president of the United States. He would never have become president of the United States. And we would never have been able to make his great we shall overcome speech to the Congress and to the world in 1965. So what was more important, that Johnson observe the proprieties and lose the election in Texas in 1948 and fade into total obscurity for all time to come, or that he steal the election but become immortal by making the we shall overcome speech? And the students have no good answer for this. It just keeps them awake, you know, and they, they brood about it. And 
most particularly, they, they start looking at each other very nervously and saying, are we going to have to do this too? Are we going to have to make choices like that? And I say, yes, guys, uh, in various ways uh, you are. So uh, those are uh, some standards that I use. I always try to find a biography of someone that no one has ever heard of, uh, but uh, through some accident, some source has survived that can just document the life of an ordinary person, because I think that's one of the obligations of historians is to, is to do that. And there is a wonderful diary uh, of Martha Ballard, a midwife in Maine in the 1790s, just talking about what she did from day to day, which was to deliver babies and whatnot. And she's doing that in the period when the Republic is being founded. Uh, uh, She's doing that when Washington becomes the first president. But you'll find no echoes of this in her uh, diary or anything like that, no comment on it. It was just not very important to her life. What was important was delivering babies. And then I say to the students, well, which is it more important? And they will all say something like, oh, Washington was much more important. <laughs> but I, I remind them he was once a baby and somebody had to deliver him, right? And so that kind of uh, throws them uh, as well. So it's fun to find biographies that can present uh, dilemmas of that kind uh, in one way or another. I always use the Shakespeare biography, uh, partly because there are no Shakespeare biographies. It's impossible to write the biography of his. But I think it's very important to try. And Shakespeare has been a good test case for, uh, probably the best test case for biographers uh, over the years. And the students are passionate about Shakespeare. They have very, very strong feelings about him. So we have very rowdy discussions about what works and what does not work uh, in Shakespeare uh, biography. Um, I have a biography of the Emperor Augustus, who started out as Octavian at the age of 18 and was running the world by the age of 30 uh, in Rome in the first century, and uh, first century BC, who left no papers behind or anything but uh, a novelist, John Williams, imagined uh, his own, uh, Octavian's own uh, associates writing letters to each other about him. And so um, Octavian actually appears in the biography, but people are writing letters about him, back and forth, fake letters, which this novelist has uh, invented. But that's a very interesting way into biography because it shows what to do when the sources uh, really are not adequate for someone. And yet you know enough about the times, you know enough about the life that you can use your own imagination to to fill in the gaps uh, on that. And then finally, I always wind up with a biography of God, which uh, is a highway, uh, kind of a high note on which to end the class. Uh, Jack Miles, uh, a former Jesuit priest, has got this wonderful biography, which is based on the Hebrew Old Testament, which sees God as a figure in history, which is very much how the Old Testament is written. Um, but as someone uh, who does very strange things, like uh, creating man, creating woman, uh, let there be light, <laughs> then flooding the whole thing, then promising not to do it again, uh, and a whole series of uh, very strange behaviors of one kind or another uh, that result in an awkward relationship with his own uh, creation. And Miles uh, captures this in a, a very significant way, a very interesting way. And that's important because the students don't read the Bible uh, uh, as much as they should. Uh, so these are just some of the books that I use in the class, and always each one of them is there to make a point. Each one of them is there to um, raise questions in the minds of the students. Each one of them is there in part to disturb the students, uh, just have them coming away from class worrying about, am I going to have to do that? Am I going to have to do this and all of that? Because they need to worry about these things. So that's not directly related to anything to do with the field of grand strategy. But I think it's very much related to the, uh, to the importance of teaching and what you can do uh, with young people, particularly if you have them in a, in a seminar setting, as we do. We run a lot of undergraduate seminars uh, here where I'm not lecturing. I'm just letting them find their own way through things. 
And that's what these books are intended to do. Well, that's one of the major themes of the podcast, getting to learn from people such as yourself. So I, I do appreciate that. Now you have way more books just added to my uh, my Amazon checkout. So I appreciate <laughs> that. But I, I want to get back to, to grand strategy. And you mentioned sure. advisors. And something I've seen in a business context is a lot of leaders have trouble delegating. And, and what have you seen throughout history in some of these great leaders' ability to delegate and use their advisors? Well, I think this is where the temperament issue uh, comes in. Um, so um, the book, uh, my book, actually opens with a scene from um, Herodotus, uh, the most ancient of the histories we have, when the Persian king of kings, Xerxes, um, has built a bridge of boats over the, over the Hellespont and is preparing to send a million men in to conquer Greece. And he's decided uh, that he is the most powerful person in the world, and nobody can withstand him and whatnot. But he has an advisor, his uncle, um, Artabanus, who is standing there in this opening scene and says something like, Sire, are you really sure that you want to do this? Are you really sure that you want to invade Greece? Because it's a long way uh, to Athens, and because there's not much food along the way, and because there are no very good ports for supplying the ships and because the troops are going to get hungry and tired and whatnot, and accidents will happen, and who knows what could befall uh, uh, you before, before you ever fight any Greeks in the first place. You know? And so he raises all of the things that, in fact, did happen to the Greeks as they tried to invade, uh, uh, to the Persians as they tried to invade Greece. But Xerxes' response is very revealing. Artabanus says, you have to think of everything, sire. Uh, Xerxes says to Artabanus, uh, if I stop to think of everything, I would never do anything. And so he orders the, the invasion to proceed, whereupon it does fail uh, magnificently, dramatically, as a result of all the little things that happened, the things that Artabanus foresaw, but also the things that nobody could foresee. For example, Xerxes uh, was using camels to transport uh, food and whatnot for his troops' equipment. There were still lions in the mountains of Macedonia, and it turned out that the lions really liked the taste of camels. And so the lions would come down and eat the camels, you know, and so on. Nobody foresaw that. Uh, but it's the kind of uh, uh, unforeseeable circumstance that you always have to <clears throat> be prepared for. So that's a good case study uh, in um, an advisor and a leader who disregards advice. One of the best case studies um, of a leader who listens to advice is, again, Octavian Augustus. And I have a chapter on him in the book. But um, he was uh, very skillful in uh, plotting politics and plotting maneuvers and whatnot in the, in the politics of Rome in this period in the aftermath of Caesar's assassination. But he quickly discovered he's not very good on battlefields. Uh, he tends to throw up. He tends to get sick on the eve of battles and uh, is just not very good at this. You know. And uh, there were several other things, categories, uh, where he, was, he, he recognized his own weaknesses. And so um, he, um, he has, um, he has a, a friend, um, uh, Agrippa, who he, to whom he delegates <clears throat> the authority uh, to organize the battles or to uh, build a fleet or all of that. And uh, time and time again, the most powerful man in the world is delegating his authority to Agrippa and to his other uh, advisors. He understands their own specialties. He understands his own weaknesses, and he compensates for these with the use of advice uh, in that way. <clears throat> that requires a kind of humility, if you think about it, which Xerxes did not have, but uh, uh, Augustus certainly did. And that's partly what I mean by uh, temperament as being uh, a very important component of strategy, that you're not so full of yourself that you cannot listen to other people. Because it's the other people who have the time and the uh, ability often to look around and see things that you can't see. Uh, and that's why it's important to listen. I can only imagine the countless hours that went into research and writing of this. Was there anything that changed about your decision-making framework? 
Well, in this case, the research was just the teaching of this class for some 20 years or so. This was not a book that required archival research or all of that. I had assigned uh, books uh, on all of these people who were featured in my book. So there had been a lot of student discussions and discussions. Uh, it was also very interesting to teach this seminar with two other faculty members always, you know. So I was not allowed to get away with anything without being challenged by my faculty colleagues, uh, and that was good as well. So uh, this was a book that was fun to write in that regard, but I could mostly do from my uh, my study. The previous book, the George Kennan biography, uh, which came out in uh, 2011, that was a totally different project because I was the authorized uh, biographer of George Kennan, the architect of the containment strategy in the Cold War. Uh, he designated me to do that uh, back in 1981 when he was 79 years old with the understanding that the book would appear only after his death. And so I had total access to him and total access to his friends and relations and total access to his papers, and there was nothing that I could not ask or could not see. But with the understanding, none of it would be published uh, until his, his death. Um, he lived to be 101, so this became a 30-year project uh, of working on it, not full-time, but uh, off and on, uh, and huge amounts of research and huge amounts of um, documents reviewed and whatnot. And my attic is still bulging with all the documents uh, that I used uh, for this book. It turned out to be about an 800-page book. So it was a completely different book to write from the uh, Grand Strategy book. It really was a, a research book. And I think I've oscillated uh, back and forth in my career between uh, some books that required a, good, a great deal of archival research, whether in the Yale Library or the Presidential Libraries or the Library of Congress or um, uh, overseas, uh, on the one hand, and other books that just came out of teaching, uh, which uh, where you just kind of sit back and think about what you've been trying to convey to the to the students themselves. And I've enjoyed that uh, oscillation back and forth between those two methods of writing uh, history. Uh, I think it would have been much duller just to be doing one thing all the way through. You mentioned spending time in the presidential library. I know your close acquaintances with the 43rd president, George W. Bush. What's the best advice he's given you? Well, I wouldn't say it's a close acquaintance, but I would say that uh, he did read one of the books that came out of uh, teaching. This was a book fairly quickly done after 9-11 called Surprise Security and the American Experience. And I was just trying to move the phenomenon of surprise attack into the context, larger context of American history. And uh, so I was getting um, rumors that uh, this was being read in the White House. Um, I had known Condi Rice for a long time. She was National Security Advisor uh, at that point. She called me down and said, come down and have lunch with me and with my staff, which I did one day. And this is in 2004. Uh, and then she said, uh, oh, by the way, could you spare just a few moments for the president? <laughs> I said, yeah, I think I probably could, Condi. <laughs> and so I go into the Oval, and there is Bush and Cheney and Condi, and you know, I think it's just going to be a photo op or something like that. But Bush says, sit down. <laughs> and he pulls out his copy of the book, and he's done notes all the way through it. You know, And he says, um, tell me about Bismarck. And the last thing I'd expected that day would be to give the president of the United States a lecture on Bismarck, just like that, off the top of my head. But I learned that he uh, was and remains an avid reader of, of history. And uh, so uh, regularly after that, uh, I would be called down with a few other historians just to meet in the Oval Office, sometimes for two or two and a half hours uh, at a whack, and just talk. Maybe one day we'd be talking about Lincoln, and maybe one day we'd be talking about uh, Wilson. And um, I know on one day we talked toward the end of his uh, incumbency, we talked about, well, how do you write a good presidential memoir and things like that. And uh, it was very hard to keep up with him because somehow he was reading just a, a great deal. Uh, I've never been completely sure how he used it or whether it was, you know, for him mostly recreational or whether he was drawing um, profound insights 
from it. Uh, and I'm still not sure about that. Uh, but uh, it was uh, an interesting thing. I'd not run into this kind of relationship before with the previous president or with a successor either, as far as that goes. Uh, and it was just interesting to see somebody taking his, somebody who was president taking history seriously, and nobody knew anything about this. He kept it secret. You know, uh, it was very, very well conceived or concealed for whatever reason, which I still don't quite understand. Uh, but it was done very quietly, and uh, yet I think it was very important to him. That's very interesting even hearing about. I can only imagine what it's like for you. The final theme I'd like to cover with you is what we were just talking about and the ability to learn. And you mentioned the importance of being challenged. How do you surround yourself with opposing idea to challenge your ideas? Yeah, well, I've looked for ways to convey that question uh, to the students. Um, and one of the things you learn in teaching is that you have to find ways to talk about what students already know about so that they can say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I know about that. And so uh, after quite a while, I um, finally decided, and I know you promised me, uh, Sean, that we would not talk about sports, but this actually does have to do with sports. Uh, I finally decided, well, it's, it's like coaching in athletics, you know that what you want to do uh, in athletics, you have a coach who knows the history of the game, who knows the theory of the game, how it's supposed to be played and so on, how it has been played well and how it has been played badly. And the coach puts you through training and preparation for this building stamina. Uh, one of the most important things coaches teach, I think, is how to fail and how to recover from failure. Uh, and, uh, so everybody acknowledges that, uh, you know, you're playing the game, whatever the game is better for having been coached than if you were just out there, uh, improvising, making it up as you go along. But when you get out there, when you get out on the playing field or the basketball court or whatever it is, and you're confronting, uh, an opponent or you're confronting, uh, spectators who may be friendly and may be hostile or you're confronting uh, rain and snow and wind and storm and whatever, the coach cannot tell you what to do at every stage. You've got to make split-second decisions yourself, uh, where to kick the ball, where to move it, uh, how to run, where to go, all of this. And there's no time for the coach to do anything but just jump up and down and shout on the sidelines, and you're on your own. And I think that's life. You know, It seems to me that uh, we as teachers can be coaches in the sense that we can provide that kind of training. But I do prefer to think of it as history and not as, uh, as theory. But there's no way that we can continue to guide our students after they graduate, you know, when they become uh, Secretary of State or National Security Advisor or whatnot. You know, they're not going to call us up and say, well, what do I do now? You know, it's not going to happen. So what you hope is that you've put some ideas into their heads. You've given them some training. For the unexpected, and I think that's the key to the whole thing, is that you are going to confront always in life the unexpected. And these will be all of the things that will keep your aspirations limited, all of the things that you will not be able to do, that you wish you could do for one reason or another because your capabilities are limited. Uh, so how do you deal with uh, those things? What choices uh, do you make? And uh, it seems to me that some awareness of how other people in the past have made choices like this is actually fundamental to a well-educated uh, person. Just to be able to say, well, uh, this is a little bit like what um, uh, Octavian confronted, or this is a little bit like what Lincoln encountered or whatnot. Not that anybody is going to become a carbon copy of Octavian or Lincoln or whatnot, not by any means. But just to say that there is a reservoir of uh, information, a kind of a database out there. Uh, think of it as a, a series of ghostly coaches, not just one coach, but a bunch of coaches, all of which are ghosts now. But they're whispering in your ear how the game was played and maybe what you should do in the game that you are playing. And uh, I think that's what we should be doing as teachers. I don't think there's a greater place to end than that. You've put ideas into my head. 
you've really tested my thinking and, and made me think differently. I really do enjoy your work. Uh, this was a true honor getting to speak with you, spend an hour. I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Is there anywhere you'd like them checking out? I know we'll link up all of your books in the show notes, but anywhere else you'd like them going? No, I think that's that's pretty much it because uh, you can obviously recommend your own books, but when you start recommending other books, you get into trouble because you're recommending some people but not recommending others, and they will let you know about that. So best not to do that, I think. I'm, I'm fine with what you've done. Fantastic. Well, I truly do appreciate this, and thank you again for joining us on What Got You There. Yes, sir. Enjoyed it. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc, and you guys can enter code WGYT, and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple, too, to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh. What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.